Good morning. I was asked to give a talk today and uh, thank you all so much for the opportunity to give to you this way. I don't often get the opportunity to do, to do this, so uh, thank you. Uh, today I want to bring up a Hakuin song of Zazen. Uh, this is one of two chants that uh, occurs before Teisho, uh, prior to opening this Dharma. First, I'd like to recite it to you. And uh, I'd like to remind all of us, actually, uh, while we're listening, to listen with our whole being and not just our ears. Uh, this song of Zazen uh, requires us to drop self and listen with our whole heart and our whole mind, with our true nature. And also sometimes when we chant, our habitual mind can overlook the depth of what we're chanting. So just listen. From the beginning, all beings are Buddha, like water and ice. Without water, no ice. Outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying of thirst. Like the son of a rich man wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be freed from the wheel of samsara? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi, beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Observing the precepts, repentance, and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils, it purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And if we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self. Our own self is no self. We go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three. Straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form. In going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless Samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land and this very body, the body of Buddha. I am always moved deeply by this song. Um, something in me recognizes the underlying purpose 
the deep underlying purpose and true testament of what Zazen is to us in our own life practice and why we practice. <clears throat> this reminder gives me reason for deeply, deeply reflected gratitude and the presence of not knowing. Uh, before breaking down uh, at least an inch of this sutra, of this uh, song, let me speak about the author. Uh, the author um, is one of my favorite Zen masters, Hakuin Ekaku, born in 1685 in Hara, in the shadow of Mount Fuji. Talk about being exposed to change. Uh, he was present for a couple of those eruptions. Hakuin as a young boy always seemed to know that he would seek a religious life. Um, from the time he was very young, uh, he went with his mother, who practiced Nichiren Buddhism, uh, to the temple. Without expounding too much, if you've never heard of Nichiren or if you've heard of it, uh, it's a sect of Buddhism that involves chanting the Lotus Sutra twice daily in order to practice faith in action. So it was a sect of Buddhism that was in the middle between Pure Land Buddhism which focuses on tariki, or other power. So an external power is acting on you. And a middle way on the other side between, uh, from, from zazen. So zazen is on one side, and it focuses on jiriki, or joriki, which is self-power, which is our ability to liberate ourselves. So right down the middle, Nichiren. And he used to visit the temple with his mother when he was young. When he was 11 years old, he heard from a nearby Nichiren teacher the fate of sinners who fall into the eight hot hells. Now, I'm not going to get into what those eight hot hells are. <laughs> it would take some time, uh, but I believe it is quite self-explanatory. Uh, he spent a good deal of his time after that prostrating, cleansing, waking up at the crack of dawn, praying, in order to avoid the fires of hell. Um, what I find interesting here is actually the motivation for practice that he exhibits here in the beginning part of his life. And for the majority of the first half of his life, he is practicing in order to avoid. And I think this is something that we all start out with. We all start out afraid of something maybe or we feel something deeply within us that we want to maybe run away from, maybe we feel our distractions. So there is uh, Hakuin's motivation in the early part of his life to run as fast as he can <laughs> from hell. Um, and this also begs the question of why we all practice, right? This also comes to the Four Noble Truths, right? Uh, there is suffering, there is cause for suffering, there is an end to suffering, and the way out is the Eightfold Path. So Hakuin also, like Buddha, sought to, and like we all do, sought to answer this question. He saw death, he saw pain, he saw old age, and he asked, why? I'll just leave you to turn inward with that question here and continue. Uh, by the time he turned 14, he made it quite clear to his family that he wanted tonsure which is the shaving of the head. He wanted to practice a religious life. He wanted to become a priest, a monk. Even though his parents were not really inclined to do so, 
they really didn't want their youngest son going into the priesthood, but they knew there was no arguing with him because he was quite determined. Um, so reluctantly, they send him to shave his head at the nearby temple of Shoenji. All right, from the time he was 14 to about age of, the age of 23, he traveled from temple to temple. From Shoenji to Daishoji to Zensoji, he sought a way to prevent death, sickness, ever and always trying to escape the fires of hell. Don't we all? <laughs> a notable story from this period was his realization that Master Yento of Zensoji was killed by bandits and his head was cut off like a rabbit's. When he heard this story, he suffered a crisis of faith. He was at Zensoji at this time and he heard from the other monks. Yeah, they could hear his death cry from 10 miles away. And he heard this and he suffered a crisis of faith. And he said, if such a marvelous and incredible Zen master could not even avoid this pain and this death, how could a humble priest without any kind of esoteric powers escape. So he is quoted as saying, after that moment of hearing the story, the mere sight of the sutra or Buddhist image was now enough to turn my stomach. So even though he stayed at Zensoji, he couldn't chant sutras and he couldn't read and he couldn't sit much. He was just overcome by his anxiety and hearing that um, this uh, becoming a priest, becoming a monk and becoming enlightened would not give him protection. So um, it was at this point that he actually, and you might have seen some of his paintings and calligraphy. Um, he actually at this point now started uh, painting and doing calligraphy and, and he got into a lot of the literature. So everyone has to make a living, I guess. He decided, maybe this isn't for me, maybe I should just paint. So it was also during this period that he saved a young woman from being crushed by a scaffolding during a Japanese reenactment of the incident of the 47 Ronin. He became acquainted with the family and was offered to join the family. He wanted to, I think the father of the young woman wanted him to uh, marry his daughter. And this is interesting too. Um, and I'm not, I'm not gonna go on too much longer about Hakuin because I, have, I wanna get to the song, but um, I thought this was interesting in that we all suffer at some point, some crisis and some turning away and something else happens in our life. But um, it, it's also notable to point out how determined Hakuin was to continue. So the father wanted him to join the family and he declined because um, he wanted to, he was really fairly determined to dedicate himself to the religious life. Also notable during this period was his complete and utter rejection of the Lotus Sutra casting it aside after reading it because it was a bunch of parables about cause and effect that seemed useless to his practice and his religious seeking. So this is notable because he turns away from it, but later on you'll see that he turns back. In spite of the setback, the disappointment and his own reluctance, Hakuin's determination prevailed. So 
he journeyed from Zen Soji, where he had his crisis of faith, to Monk Bao's temple, which was reputed to have an extensive library. So he could devote himself to literature and try to figure everything out because he was still very confused about what he wanted to do. It was at this time too that he received news that his mother had died and he had been very close to his mom. So he was inconsolable. And he realized that, you know, I don't know what to do. So we all get to this point or a lot of us get to this point. I hope we all do because I know that it's common and it happens that we get to a point where, what do I do? No idea. Where do I go from here? So he realized at this temple that um, he had, he had uh, come to an impasse in his practice. And he actually took one evening to light incense in the library. And he chose one book at random and he prayed and he said, please give me some guidance. He prayed to the gods. And he pulled a book out called Spurring Students Through the Zen Barriers. He opened and read of Tzu Ming, an important figure in Rinzai Zen, actually, who would ward away the sleep demon on cold mountain nights by jabbing himself with a needle-sharp awl. So this monk would actually sit on cold nights and in, in order to not uh, fall asleep because of the cold that he felt during Zazen. Um, he would jab himself with a sharp instrument. <laughs> That's how determined he was to me. After reading of such determination, Hakuin was resolved again to continue. He again traveled from temple to temple, finally ending up at Shoju Hermitage, where he had um, the most intense experience so far in his life of practice. So uh, Shoju, just to make note, Shoju was, um, had a lot of very harsh methods. And a lot of the monks went running for the hills saying, I don't need this. But Hakuin seemed to, even though he spent most of his time with Shoju, trembling and in complete fear of this man, uh, he stayed. And uh, he got, what he got from Shoju's, um, what the practice at Shoju taught him was his motivation for practice. So he started to question his motivation for practice. So Shoju pushed him very hard to continue. And there was a notable moment here too as well where Shoju asks Hakuin how he got into the priesthood. So how'd you get into this business? And Hakuin promptly responded that he had wanted to escape hell. I just want to get out of here. You know, I, I don't want to go to hell. I, I want to be saved. And Shoju responded with, you're a self-centered rascal, aren't you? So later on, Hakuin returned the question to Shoju. This was maybe months later. And, he stayed, and, and Shoju stated, to work for the salvation of my fellow beings. Hakuin laughed and said, that's a much better reason than mine. I don't know, what's your reason? And what would you have done, I wonder? I wonder what I would have done in such a situation. Uh, it was in the middle of a soul retreat after leaving Shoju that Hakuin received message uh, from a servant from his home in Hara that his father was dying. So 
he left solo retreat, he left all his traveling and he went back home. He thought he would go back, but he never did. So he traveled home and he became the head priest at uh, Sh uh, Shoenji, the original temple where he had received Tanshir. So the greatest part of this story for a queen, I know I'm going on about how queen, how queen is, a, it was hard writing this talk because I know that this can be a, Ha Queen's life is a koan in itself. But um, the greatest part of this story, Ha Queen's life, is Ha Queen's experience of enlightenment. So after years of seeking escape from the fires of the eight hot hells, when he was 41 years, he was one night reading the Lotus Sutra, the same sutra that he said, this is useless. What am I going to use this for? You know, And he was reading a chapter where the Buddha reveals to Shariputra the true nature of the Mahayana Bodhisattva, whose own enlightenment is but the first step in his career of assisting others to attain theirs. This is the same point that Shoji was trying to drive home years back. He said, I do this for the salvation of others. As Hakuin read, the sound of a cricket churring at the foundation stones of the temple reached his ears. At that instant, he crossed the threshold into great enlightenment, teardrops cascading down his face like strings of beads as it is, as it is described in his biography. They poured out like beans from a ruptured sack. For the remaining 42 years of his life, Hakuin did everything he could to liberate his fellow beings. In the last part of his life, he was consumed by illness. Uh, many think that was diabetes because he loved his sweets. Uh, Hakuin still, in spite of his illness, worked tirelessly to liberate others. Some of his students would say, why don't you just retire? Why don't you just stop teaching? You have successors. You have people who can take over. And he said, uh, what's my fatigue compared with the great hunger my students suffer? He passed away in 1768 after this long illness. He had given new life to Zen. And virtually all Rinzai Zen teachers are descended from him. He actually did revive koan study because at the time, Zen had actually been in very much in a, de in a decline. Um, and a lot of people were getting uh, not, not as determined in their practice. So some of his final talks, actually, it's notable that uh, some of his final talks, um, the crowds there were absolutely unprecedented. And he, he encouraged and he, in, he encouraged lay person and priest alike and monk alike to continue their practice. So I want to bring attention to this deeply humble and compassionate quote of Hakuin's. What's my fatigue compared with the great hunger my students suffer? And so he writes the song of Zazen. From the beginning, all beings are Buddha. You may have heard the question, what is Buddha? Countless talks and koans ask this question repeatedly. What is Buddha? There are many answers to this question as there are people who have attempted to answer it. It is a being not apart from ourselves we hear. Buddha literally means enlightened one. Primarily, from the beginning, all beings are primarily 
Buddha primarily means that we all have the potential to realize that this true being is one being. It is our being and not outside of ourselves. What is this nature that we all are? We ask, our, we ask ourselves this question, this state of non-attachment, state of no mind, pure, lucid, and without preference. This mind not minding, what is it? Hakuin states that we are this. It's difficult as human beings to accept that this is the truth, right? We're all involved in uh, self-deprecating and judgmental comments and criticisms of ourselves, of ourselves and others, but you know, primarily, ironically, of ourselves. So, he continues, like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. So, water is ice. And ice is water, even though one is seemingly solid and cold, and one is flowing and warm. One cannot take the shape of its container, and one can immediately take the shape of its container. One is free to flow anywhere, and the other is unmoving, rigid. It is a wonderful analogy and reminds me of one of uh, Roshi's recent talks where Vairokana Buddha is described. I am life force and I am destruction. I am the singular and I am the multitude. I am mind and I am everything that occurs in mind. Buddhahood is not a fixed state of being. It's a dynamic flow that appears in many different ways, pops up all the time in our lives. It is us. When we're stuck, we can be a force of destruction. When we are flowing, we can give the life that is needed. Remember also that ice and water should not be fixed concepts. It is not that ice is bad and water is good. It's that when ice is needed, it's there. When water is needed, it's there. They complement each other. We encompass all states of mind, all states of being. As is stated in the Heart Sutra, light and darkness are a pair like the foot before and the foot behind in walking. Also, do not judge by any standards. When we judge one, we isolate the other, when both are our Buddha nature. When we call it water, it's not, not water. When we call it ice, it's not not ice. No matter what you add to it, its structure does not change its chemical composition doesn't change. I forgot who stated this, but some Zen master once said, who told you to add salt and vinegar? Then Hakuin continues, how near the truth, yet how far we seek, like one in water crying of thirst. What are we looking for? What do we seek? Why do we look far and wide for something that's right here? We have heard a multitude of phrases that explain what it's like to be Buddha without knowing we are Buddha. It's like mounting an ox to go looking for an ox. We say, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not abundant. 
I am not trustworthy. This self-deprecation is such disparagement. Such a lack of awareness of our own great potential as bodhisattvas, as great beings, as liberator and liberated, as the multitude and the singular all at once. We squash trust in creativity and misplace our trust in a sense of knowing. I know I'm not Buddha. I know no one can trust me. I know that I'm not good enough. I find this to be especially true, you know, as a teacher, um, I do read a lot of literature and studies uh, about teaching. And I think this story that um, was told by Ken Robinson, who was knighted for his work in education in the UK, uh, he passed away last year, last August, actually. Uh, but he has a wonderful TED talk about creativity and education, if you're ever interested. But picture this. So this story. A little girl is animatedly drawing during free time in her elementary classroom. Her teacher sees how deeply involved she is in her activity. And she approaches the little girl and asks her, what are you drawing? She looks pointedly at the teacher and states, I'm drawing God. The teacher promptly responds, nobody knows what God looks like. Undaunted, the girl looks pointedly at the teacher with surety, she responds. They will in a minute. Bravo, you know, that makes me cry with joy. Well stated. How do we know that we're not? What is this knowledge that we all have deep inside of us? We, have, we, we know we're not Buddha. We know we're not worthy. We know we're not trustworthy, right? If you trust that you're not, that's gonna be your experience. If you trust that you are, it will be unquestionable. Like the son of a rich man wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. So this part of the song is referring to a parable. It's an old Indian parable. In India, there once lived a rich nobleman. He had everything he could want, including a beloved son. One evening, his son was kidnapped. The nobleman was devastated. Years went by and the boy was never found. As the years passed, the nobleman became more devastated by his loss. One day he was looking outside as a young beggar came to the gate. The rich man saw this beggar's face and immediately recognized his son. At once he jumped up and called out to his servants, bring that young beggar here. Several of his servants ran after him, called him back. The young man, frightened by all this attention and being but a beggar after all, declined, stating with a trembling voice, forgive me, please. I shall never come to your house again. Although I am a beggar, I haven't done anything wrong. No, no, the servants told him, we aren't scolding you. Our master just wishes to see you. In spite of their assurances, the beggar became more afraid and began to tremble even more, saying, I have nothing to do with such a great nobleman. 
find that the servants were forced to turn back to the nobleman's house to report their failure to the master, full of affection for his son. He gave an order to one of the young servants to disguise himself as a beggar and befriend his lost son. When this servant, or beggar, in disguise, thought the time was right, he turned to his friend and said, I have found a good job. The work is not too hard and the wages are good. Get good money from this. They will also provide us with a small room. Why don't you come and try it with me? They both became employed as gardeners. The young man was promoted gradually from gardener to house servant and to secretary. Eventually, he was in a position to take care of all the nobleman's affairs, having not much longer to live. The nobleman called everyone together and introduced the young man saying, this youth is in fact my own son who disappeared when he was a little child and promptly handed over all his property and status to his son. Through this reference to this parable, Hakuin further refers to our problem of seeing ourselves as not Buddha, I'm not that, I'm not that. The rich man is the Buddha revealing to us who we are. His son is us in our true nature, little by little realizing that this is who we are. What would have happened to this young man had the nobleman all of a sudden introduced himself as his father and him as his son? The fear of such limitless capacity can be frightening. It makes us run for the hills. It makes us run to our addictions, our distractions, and various attempts at denial and self-judgment. We are more used to feeling small and limited than limitless and abundant as we are. So what are the six worlds? He also mentions the six worlds. We endlessly circle the six worlds. What are the six worlds? The six worlds are those realms depicted on the Tibetan wheel of life or the wheel of samsara as it's described in the next part of the song. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from the wheel of samsara? Here's where Hakuin describes our endless wandering. The wheel of samsara is the Tibetan wheel of life, where it's described our transmigrations as souls from realm to realm, endlessly. Endlessly. The cycle of birth and death continues on. The six realms, the six realms just to note, uh, consist of hell, full of all sorts of trials and sufferings. Also, the world of beasts of various shapes. Three, the world of starvation for the fighting world where bloody struggles are going on day and night. Five, this human world of ours. And six, the celestial world full of joy. Cause and effect and the conditions that surround it create a web of karmic interactions that seem intricate and insurmountable. Reincarnation, our endless circling is stated here by Hakuin to really be our ignorance of the truth. If this habitual consciousness is awakened to this truth, our transmigration would be cut off and we would be the enlightened ones. We all know that we have very strong habits that lead us astray. Often we go along with these habits, but they lead us down dark paths. We are habituated to ignorance, as the Dalai Lama states and as Roshi told us in his last talk. 
To cut off transmigration is to stop following our habitual patterns and tendencies. These may include defensiveness, anger, self-deprecation, criticism, judgment, all those things that prevent us from seeing who we are, feeling who we are, being who we are, dropping all of that. All of this begins to point to the one path to realization, the gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi, beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Outright, our transmigration, our habitual propensity for ignorance, our patterns, our weaving of complicated webs of karma, all that can be cut off, all that can drop away. We are liberated through Zazen Samadhi. Samadhi is the dynamic oneness, just to note, that we experience when self and other drop away in Zazen. This is a state not where self and other merge, but a state where self and other are not yet separated by the mind. It's pre-born. As if we never said you and me. As if we never said subject, object. As if we never said that is my cat. Those are my kids. Reality is experienced as unified, interconnected, as it has always been. This all comes from Zazen, as Hakuin states. During Zazen, we are not doing anything. We're not saying anything. You don't allow the body to move. You don't allow the body to move your mouth. You do not allow your emotions and thoughts to command your vessel. <clears throat> you do not allow these habitual patterns to follow through with action. It's not that they're not there. It's not that they're not there. It's that we don't allow them to follow through, to manifest. It's important that we do not judge the thoughts as they come in and out of our zazen. They are there because we have habituated this pattern. We have woven this cloth with our own hands. It is only natural that our minds are bound to repeat this pattern. It's natural. It's going to happen. When you practice something over and over and over again, this is what happens. It comes up, but we do not follow through. And we realize that we're not bound by this pattern that we've created in Zazen. And through Zazen, we are able to realize the potential of our true nature. Observing the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And if we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Likewise, the precepts are the way things have always been. Pre-born. 
when we take the precepts or take Jukai, we study for months, as most many of you know. Uh, and of course, onward as we continue to live and practice. The precepts are not just rules to live by, but a way of being. Every action we take, every thought that passes, we align with the precepts, which is actually aligning ourselves with our true nature. Self drops. We learn that there's no living apart from the precepts. We either practice right speech, right thought, and right action in every moment, or we don't. Everybody has to practice something, as Roshi says. And our lives suffer for it, as we all know. When we sit in Zazen, we are able to become aware of and observe the way our mind works through thought. We are able to see the immediate reaction, the habitual consciousness with which we operate. We can see our repeated patterns. We can see how our mind works. This is, this is what happens when I think this. Oh, this thought comes up. That means this thought is going to come up. And that means I'm going to be triggered this way or that way. But we don't have to go with that. We don't have to follow. It's not necessary. We can watch the wheel turn without jumping on the hamster wheel. So through Sazen, we are able to get in touch with a sense of governance, or as we know in Zen, the master. We've heard this often, and you've heard this before, but we ask ourselves who is in charge. Every day, Master Zwigan used to call himself Master and would answer yes. Again, he would call thoroughly awake, thoroughly awake. And he would answer yes, yes. Don't be deceived by others any day or any time. No, no. After Zazen, the precepts become a continuation and an expression of Zazen Samadhi. So through Zazen Samadhi, realizing who is master, who's in charge? Do we have to get on that hamster wheel and just get going around and around and around and around? Or can we just watch it go around and around and around? Because it's going to, it's going to keep going around. Maybe eventually it will stop, it will give up. And we won't um, motivate it anymore to be there, turning and turning and turning. But there's always that potential too. When we sit in Zazen, there is repentance because there is a return to the oneness of self and other. So Hakuin talks about repentance. When we sit in Zazen, there is giving because there is nothing to lose. We realize that whatever karma we bring to this moment does not need to obstruct us and does not have to dictate how we move through the rest of our lives. The practice of Zazen has the power to intercept the traje trajectory sorry, of our karmic patterns. At the moment, we, as a small self, drop away. We are at one. This is where the word, actually, I find this interesting. Uh, this is where the word atonement comes from. It is at one moment. At, atonement has often been described as repentance or the seeking of forgiveness. Remember that at one moment is equal to returning to oneness as we chant. 
It is also forgiveness, which is manifested as the dropping of self, which is much deeper than the words, I'm sorry, or forgive me. Forgiveness is returning to oneness. Forgiveness is the great equalizer. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Why? Because originally there are no obstructions when seer and seen drop away. Let's ask, how can I merge? Or how can I at one? Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, in going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. Cause and effect are one. They become one or they are one originally. Maybe before we separated them. The means and the end are one. They are not two things or three things. They are not the multitude of things. Our form is no form. Our thought is no thought. Water and ice are as one. Through Zazen, we are able to take responsibility for all of it. When we give someone a hug, the whole universe will resonate with that hug. When we snap at someone, the whole universe will resonate with that harshness. As Einstein says, when something vibrates, the electrons of the entire universe resonate with it. Everything is connected. The greatest tragedy of human existence is the illusion of separateness. All things realized as one. Nothing is in opposition. You are eternal. You are eternity at once. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi? How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom? What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. And concluding, once you and I realize that we are one, we work and live together in another realm, a realm of complete freedom, vast and limitless with no boundaries. As the boy who became a beggar, who may become fearful of this boundless state of being. Ultimately, through Zazen, there is no other fate for us. We are of abundant capacity when we allow ourselves to change, to merge, and to love. And then there is nothing but peace, nothing but acceptance, and nothing but boundless wisdom. Thank you.